Love getting prices that are lower than low on food that's fresher than fresh? Then shop at Kroger. We give you more ways to save on the fresh you love with tools like the Kroger app, where you can find personalized coupons on top of weekly sales, giving you prices that are lower than the everyday low. Kroger, fresh for everyone. It's the big $10 sale. So mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am Kevin Randall, and I will be joined in just a moment by Nick Redfern. But before I bring Nick onto the program, I just wanted to say one thing, or maybe several things, who knows. Back on June 25th, we had that ridiculous UAP report given to the Congress that I think of as a C-minus high school project. Won't go into the details of that, we all know that. At that time, they said 90 days, there would be an update. The 90 days is expired and I can find no, no evidence of an update. I'm thinking what happened is the director of national intelligence was caught flat-footed when in early June, people began talking about the report that would be issued and they hadn't really done anything. So they scrambled to put something together and then they bought some more time by saying in 90 days, we'll have an update. Nobody's talking about that. So I think that uh, they're just kind of letting it fall by the wayside. But I, I have more about that at my blog and you can take a look at that, um, some of the things that are going on in that respect. So I just thought I'd bring that up because uh, if there's something going on out there and I'm not aware of it, I'm sure somebody will let me know through email that I've, I've messed up on that. As I say, I'm going to be talking to Nick Redfern, who is a full-time author, journalist, specializing in a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, UFO sightings, government conspiracy, alien abductions, and the paranormal phenomenon. He writes regularly for the London Daily Express newspaper, Fortean Times, Fate, and UFO Magazine. Well, probably not UFO Magazine anymore. His previous books include Three Men Seeking Monsters, Strange Secrets, Cosmic Crashes, and the FBI Files, and his latest book is called Cleverly Time Travel, and we'll be talking about that, which is why he's here today. Among his many exploits, Nick has investigated reports of lake monsters in Scotland, vampires in Puerto Rico, werewolves in England, aliens in Mexico, and sea serpents in the United States. I think we should get the aliens in the United States because they're crossing the border in great numbers. Oh, wait, I'm not supposed to say that. Uh, Redfern, Nick Redfern has traveled and lectures extensively around the world. Originally from England, he currently lives in Arlington, Texas, home of the Dallas Cowboys. I just had to throw that Dallas Cowboys thing in because they're doing fairly well this year. Nick Redfern, welcome to A Different Perspective. Hey, Kevin. How's it going? How far are you from uh, the Cowboys Stadium? <laughs> How far? Um, 20 minutes, maybe. Yeah. you ever go to the games? No. Uh, <laughs> Well, they're on TV, so who cares? What's that? I say they're on TV, so who cares? That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I'm holding in my hand a copy of your latest book called "Time Travel: The Science and Science Fix." Uh, Time travel, the science and science fiction. Don't know why I stumbled over that. Thought there was something else on. Um, I've been through it. Have some questions about parts of it. Um, what inspired this particular? book well i think you know i think to some degree at least everybody has some interest in um time travel 
by that I don't mean, you know, they sort of uh, voraciously buy into every book that comes out of a magazine. But I think, you know, just the concept or the idea of, you know, if only I could have gone back, you know, and, uh, or if only I could have done this, that kind of thing. And I think a lot of people at times do think that, you know, the idea of, um, but knowing that, you know, you just cannot go back. But then wondering, well, what if we, we actually can go back, you know? So um, that was more of the, the sort of the reason. And, but also, you know, over the years, I've read some good stuff and on time travel and some bad stuff on time travel. So I thought, um, you know, I can't say that I'm, I would say like, you know, 100% expert, but from my own perspective, I felt that, um, you know, why not put out something that would be kind of along the lines of, of how I take time travel, wonder about it, is it real, let's have a look into it, what's the science about it, and basically um, get the, you know, so the, the reader can have the like um you know the every and every man's um um aspect to to time travel if you like because nobody re you know no disrespect but nobody really wants to have something you know some sort of gigantic sort of bland and you know um kind of book that's just going to be what did he say you know what does that word mean so i felt you know it's a, it's a complicated subject so let's kind of, you know, sort of um, break it down a bit more for, for us all. You know, I've done a number of science fiction novels, and I've been castigated for writing science fiction. How dare you be a UFO researcher and write science fiction? But I've, I've written a number of novels about time travel. One of them was called On the Second Tuesday of Next Week, which cleverly is available at um, Amazon as an ebook, And it, it works on the theory that the... Um, uh, two adversaries, enemies, uh, had a, a big battle near out near Pluto's orbit, and, and uh, uh, the Earth forces won, and the next thing you know, the Earth forces have lost because the bad guys were able to time travel and go back and fix the mistakes they made. So they end up fighting a war in time. And, oh, how, do, and how do you end, how do you end a war in time if you can keep going back and... Uh, oh changing everything. I mean, it's you're sort of caught in this perpetual loop of constant conflict. So I did ex actually resolve the problem, and I'm not going to tell anybody because now I hope I've piqued their interest and they'll go get to take a look at the book. <laughs> but I also did another a series of books on time travel, which was called The Time Mercenaries. And it came, it started out in a dream, which I think is kind of interesting. I dreamt that we had sent mercenaries back to the Battle of the Alamo so that the Texans could win. And I was, I, and I dreamed I was talking to my editor about it, and he said, "Well, okay, but only if the Mexicans have time travelers too." And so we, Bob Cornett and I, and Bob Cornett's been on this program, and I, I've worked quite a bit with Bob Cornett back in the uh, '80s and early '90s. Um, came up with a book called "Remember the Alamo," which talks about how they tried to fix the Battle of the Alamo so that uh, the Texans or the Texicans could win. And by doing that, they screwed up the timeline and they kept having to go back to other areas to try to fix it. They ended up in Gettysburg trying to fix that because of the things they had done in 1836. So it's, it's a, it, I guess what I'm saying is it's a subject that has fascinated me as well. And I've tried to work out all the various permutations in time travel. And so the, the, the great paradox supposedly is how can you go back into the past and say, kill your grandfather because uh, if you did that, you wouldn't exist and you couldn't go back in time. How do you resolve that paradox, or can you? Well, that's a good point. And I think, you know, that the, the sort of the, the grandfather scenario is, you know, one of the issues, more than any other, I guess, that um, demonstrates that time travel isn't feasible. But then on the other side of the coin, you know, you've got the idea or the, again, the scenario um, of, well, if you did go back and, you know, you um, you came back in time and, you know, killed this person, killed that person, well, possibly, you know, it would create um, 
like a, a different timeline. You know, that's one of the angles of this as well. It's just, you know, what if, you know, you go back and you change this and you change that? Or is it possible that we're continually um, changing timelines? Um, uh, but then on the other hand, but, you know, I have to admit, I think that one is the, mo the most persuasive one, the grandfather um, scenario uh, to make a case against time travel. I actually figured out an answer to it. And that, <laughs> is, that, is, that is because you are the instrument of the change, you have to exist. So even though you've gone back in time and killed your grandfather, you still exist because you had to go back in time to do it. You may have wiped out the rest of your family and all those sorts of things, but you still exist in that, that time scenario. But that, that moves us into the science fiction realm, and I, I just wanted to touch on that because I know your book really isn't science fiction-y. It's got a lot of um, other, other aspects uh, to it. Uh, and I, I guess the, the, the quickest thing to do is look at the Thunderbird because you talk about the Thunderbirds. Uh, tell us about the Thunderbirds. Well, yeah, this is a, a really weird story, um, the, the story of the Thunderbird photograph. And this goes back roughly um, a century ago when reportedly a photograph was taken of a gigantic bird. And um, the story itself is a fascinating one because um, it, it's such an old story. Um, you know, we think of time travel, we think of sort of more um, sort of latter day uh, activity. But in relation to this story, uh, we've got this old photograph um, of what supposedly looked eerily like a giant pterodactyl um, pinned or nailed um, to a barn door. And um, numerous people claim to have seen this photograph over the years. Um, in various magazines, supposedly like Fate and, um, and various sort of men's adventures type magazines in the 50s and 60s. And yet now, today, no one can find this photograph any, all over the place, despite the fact that a lot of people like John Keel and I think Lauren Coleman as well and various other researchers um, look into this, searched all over the place, not a single person has been able to find the photo. So one of the theories that's been put forward is that there's been some kind of ripple in time which has quite literally erased that part of history, if you like. And, um, and there are a lot of cases like that. Um, you know, it kind of ties in, um, you know, with the Mandela situation where... Um, people are sure they saw this or they were sure they saw that or they were sure they heard this or they heard some famous actor died and then you find out none of this happened um, and then that makes you think well hang on a minute um, you know what's happened to set to time what has happened to the Thunderbird photograph um, is it possible that somehow whether directly or indirectly, would it be possible to erase a part of um, history? And if so, could something like the photograph be a perfect example of that? Well, we, we, I think we should point out the Thunderbird when we're talking about is a, is a gigantic bird with a wingspan with, what, 10, 15 feet or, or more. Um, and it was shot down by a couple of cowboys, I think, in Arizona at the time that did it. And then they, they took the photograph of that. Uh, my thought on that was, and, and there's a couple of things, a couple of directions to go on this. I think we could resolve part of this. Is one, it wasn't a photograph. It was an illustration they saw. So if you're looking for a photograph, <clears throat> you may not find it because it was an illustration, some kind of a drawing in an old-fashioned newspaper or something like that, as opposed to the an actual photograph. And the second thought I had was, if we talk to the people, and I know we can't talk to John Keel, for example, but if we talk to the people who claim to have seen the photograph and could you sketch what it looked like and we could, pair, we could compare those notes and see if there was some common photograph or illustration they had seen, and that would at least move us one step closer to understanding what was going on. <clears throat> well, yeah, you're right. And, um, and I think, you know, when you look at these stories, I mean, in the way I look at it is that the easiest 
um, explanation when it comes to time travel is probably the easiest explanation. Um, and so I think there's very often, you know, a tendency to get overexcited with things like the, um, you know, the Thunderbird photo, you know, we can't find it, what's happened and all this. There may just actually be, you know, um, a down-to-earth explanation. And uh, Well, let me, let me interrupt you there because I'm running up against my brakes. And I, we'll, we'll carry on with the conversation when we come back. But uh, I wanted to say that your book, of course, is called Time Travel, The Science and Science Fiction. And I have, have in, information about things we've talked about today on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And if you get a chance, take a look at the Best of Project Blue Book, which is a book that came out just a few months ago. And I think you'll find some interesting things in it about Project Blue Book. We will be back right after this with Nick Redfern. So please stick around. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. I am here with Nick Redfern, which is to say we're not in the same place because we are practicing social distancing to keep the um, people happy with us, I suppose, the government people from arresting us for mixing and matching. We were talking time travel, we were talking about the Thunderbirds, and I had suggested just before the break that an interesting experiment would be to get the people together who'd claimed to have seen the photograph and see if uh, their illustrations matched with what everybody else said, because I seem to remember seeing it, but I think it was an illustration, uh, and it was on the side of a building with a staircase on the outside like you see in a lot of the old uh, western towns and that sort of thing but it, but I'm what I'm thinking of is an illustration as opposed to a picture did you find any of those illustrations by the way when you were looking Nick well what I found I think is probably what most people have found and that is sort of the latter-day uh, mock-ups of the original one um, you know you can find a lot of photographs um, on the internet where you know, people have sort of, um, you know, changed the colours to make them look dark, like brown or yellow, you know, to make the pictures look old pictures, but they're not. Um, so that gets it, things even more problematic because, you know, people are looking for the original and yet um, on the net there are more than sort of 10, 15 um, pictures made to look like old um sort of creased and, um, you know, torn versions of the original. And that, that, that the important thing to know is that they've actually done really well. So that kind of affects our ability, really, you know, to figure out the, the real story. But I think for me, um, although I wasn't around at the time, you know, um, I, I think for me, when the story started to break you know where is why isn't it in this magazine why isn't it there and we all remember it um, i think it was the key um issue you know when, the, when it all kicked off i mean now i don't think we we're actually getting any new material but when it started i think that was the most important 
aspect when everybody was trying to find the magazine and looking for it and, and coming up with good ideas, you know. Well, I've got a number of the pictures here, and uh, I'll put a link on my blog so people can take a look at them. I mean, one of them is clearly an illustration, and uh, and a couple of them are, are very interesting. It looked like they were really taken in the proper time frame, so we'll have to take a look at all of that as well. But moving on from the Thunderbird, did you find any examples of what would be considered time travel forward, backwards, um, that you were that, that kind of uh, caught your attention, caught your interest in suggesting that maybe there was something to this idea? Well, I mean, in the book, I, I cover a lot of different ground because I don't think time travel is just sort of one thing, so to speak. I think, you know, the idea of like back to the future, you know, you get in your machine and you press a date and then you you zoom into, um, you know, I know 1941 or 1856 or whatever, and then then bleep back again. I don't think, for the most part, it's like that. What I found is that a lot of, uh, from my perspective at least, um, a lot of time travel, I think, is achieved um, under very random and strange situations. I mean, one of the things I talk about now, what I'm going to say now, a lot of people may disagree with me, but I think there's a possibility that something like Deja vu might be a form of time travel. You know, it's nothing to do with DeLoreans, you know, or anything like that. But now some people will say, well, that's just your brain, you know, having a glitch or whatever. But it, it might not be, you know, and it makes me think and wonder what if, you know, that um, that the, the world, if you like, um, science, um, however you want to look at it, um, I think there's a possibility that things like um, uh, like deja vu and things along the lines of, you know, when people have prophetic dreams and then something comes um, true, you know, um, six weeks later or something like that. You know, that's nothing to do with achieving time travel by going through your, your time machine or anything like that. But it has, um, for me at least, uh, a scenario that that time travel isn't what we seems to be. It's not linear. It's not something we can just jump in the machine. I think most of it, the, the genuine stuff, forget the hoaxes and the mistakes and all that kind of stuff, I think we're dealing with something that is deeply random, I think. But aren't you kind of talking about precognition as opposed to actually traveling to time? You're looking into the future, maybe. Uh, and yeah, of course, that yeah. kind of negates the idea of looking. You can't look back at the into the past because that's already there, and we can access it other ways. But I mean, sort of a precognition type of scenario. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, I'll give you another example. I've got one um, full chapter in the book about how in 2017. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but in 2017, um, numerous people all across the United States started to have really graphic, terrifying dreams of, of a nuclear war looming. And, um, and I collected um, all of these um, various cases, and the more that I got, more and more people came forward. And, and it was really creepy. And, um, and it really, you know, so many people had got very, very similar nightmares, the same cities being vaporized, you know, billions of people, billions of people killed, you know. Um, but what, but clearly nothing happened. However, you know, th these dreams were so um, graphic and similar uh, that made me think, again, um, you know, things like timelines, you know, was the reason why everybody, well, not everybody, but I mean, all these people were having this dream. Is it possible that at some point that was going to happen? And at some point, either it was diverted and time was changed or it happened at random. But, there's, uh, but there were so many of those stories in 2017 of people coming forward with these uh, eerily similar um, uh, dreams and nightmares well the question that springs to mind immediately is, did they give any time frame of when this uh, nuclear war was supposed to have happened 
2017. Yeah, that, oh, that's that's what happened in 2017. Yeah. Oh, I misunderstood. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, then thank God it didn't happen. That's right. It didn't. Or, or as I talk about in the book, maybe it, di- it didn't happen in our time frame. But possibly, you know, or is it possible that we can sort of have a glimpse now and again of of another timeline? And vice versa, that people perhaps get to see a, a, a glimpse of our timeline. And maybe, as I also talk about this in the book, how, how about the case that this might tie in, um, you know, with the idea when you're dealing, um, you know, you've sort of, uh, you've been on a plane, you know, or you're just going down the street and you see someone looks just like you, you know. Oh, my God, that's me. And then they're gone, you know. <laughs> you know, that kind of situation that, um, you know, that we've all heard of where you've got someone who is your sort of mirror image, you know, doppelganger. Um, and I wonder sometimes if the doppelganger phenomenon uh, may actually be you having a glimpse of either something in the past or the future. And, and then you're gone, you know, something you, along but- those lines. But you're not really talking about time travel in that respect. You're talking about alternate universes and that we have an opportunity. Well, you could also, but you could be talking about timelines as well. If, say, for example, you know, you like, say, for example, you're you're going down the street and suddenly you see you coming towards you. But, um, you know, and then they're gone. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it's um, anything out the ordinary but on the other hand it could be you know that um if you're in a different timeline just briefly and your you know your sort of double if you like is in another then it doesn't necessarily mean there are two people but it could be you know one person actually being um you know in in two places if you like but that still sort of suggests to me uh, alternate universes as opposed to alternate timelines. That uh, we, you know, it, there's an infinite number of universes and an infinite number of possibilities in that infinite number of universes, and therefore we catch a glimpse into that one of them, one of the timelines at some point. No, yeah, you're right. And I think, you know, when you're talking about uh, sort of multiple, you know, universes and things like that. I mean, you still, I, I do think it's relative to time travel because, you know, if you alter timelines, then basically, in some respects, you are changing time. And if you're changing time, in essence, you are time traveling, you know. Well, that's, that's a good point. Uh, I wanted to ask, have you talked to any of the people who claim to have traveled through time? I mean, there's a number of people who make those claims that they're from the future and they know what's going to happen. I'm wondering where the guy was to tell me about Bitcoin, for example. But have you talked to any of these people who claim to have come from the future and can tell us what's going to happen? Well, again, I mean, the the, one, the people I've spoken to, um, I spoke to about 12 or 13 people um, for the, or the help for the book, <laughs> but five or six people um, ended up uh, being interviewed. They just they didn't want you know to be sort of perceived as crazy or whatever, which I could understand. But what I will tell you is that all the people I interviewed um, said things along the lines of that it was as if things just went really strange. Um, you know, there's the sh- there's the famous Versailles story. You know, in France, uh, two women um, going down, um, down, down Versailles in France, and everything suddenly changed. And then, you know, after a while, everything went back to normal. And and of all the people, this is what's interesting. Of all the people I interviewed, nobody was like, um, you know, a crazy professor with his time machine. Um, none of them were actively looking for time travel or anything like that. But all of them were in situations where the atmosphere kind of changed. Everything went sort of quiet. And then suddenly the streets looked different. You know, the cars looked old, um, things like that. Um, And again, 
what I found time and time again is like a, a random aspect to time travel and a not some guy in a white um you know sort of a scientific coat or whatever you know um it was literally every case was um what's going on oh my god the streets changed everything's changed and then five minutes later everything's back to normal and um i have the traditional time travel that's everybody thinks about you know you've got this machine and you can go here and you can go there and see what's going to happen next week or you know and uh, get the lottery numbers or whatever <laughs> you know there's be i've not come up although that's the the popular scenario that's talked about and it, and it, and it should be talked about um but in terms of um achieving time travel um most of what I've seen has been sort of just odd and, and rad, random um, situations. Well, what you're describing sounds suspiciously like the plot to Bid Time Return, which I'm saying that to prove my knowledge of science fiction. It was made into the movie um, with, with um, <laughs> I was going to say George Reeves, but it was, it was actually Christopher Reeve um, a number of years ago, somewhere in time, mm-hmm. where he... Somewhere in time, yeah. He sort of mentally projects himself back into the early 19th century. Uh, I'm sorry, 20th century or late 20, 18th century, and uh, lives back in that time for a period of time before he comes forward. So he doesn't have a machine. It was kind of a, a, a matter of his willpower. But we're going to have to take a break here. When we come back, I'm talking to Nick Redfern. We're talking about his book, Time Travel, um, and science fiction aspects of it as well, which fascinates me more than uh, some of these other things. Um, I'll have more information and uh, some pictures up on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. So please stick around. is my guest we're talking trying <laughs> time travel that's right folks i cannot speak the english language anymore i'm going to switch to some other language here and fool everybody Yay. we're talking about time travel uh, we were talking about the idea of people not uh, inventing a machine and going back in time and i think we've kind of explored that what i wanted to do um Nick, is I know that in the book you explore the Philadelphia experiment. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, again, this is a controversial one, but it's an intriguing one because, and that's why the the book itself is, you know, the the subtitle has the word science fiction because that case, the Philadelphia experiment, you know, um, you can really sort of put it in sort of two camps, if you like, you know, fiction or absolute 100% reality or there could be somewhere in between you know um and there's no doubt that the philadelphia experiment for people who don't know allegedly in 1943 the philadelphia naval yard a a u.s uh, navy military ship vanished briefly um and supposedly uh, well some people have said it just uh, went invisible some people said it time traveled uh, and so on. Um, the story sort of, sort of really endured over the years to the point where um, you know novels are being written about it, um, movies, um, sequels, um, and so on and so on. And um, and for me, it's a fascinating story because we know that something happened. Even the Navy has put out a fact sheet saying what they felt was the cause of these experiments but then again um you know when you hear about um sailors vanishing and things like this and never coming back or then flickering for a while and then they're gone again 
you know, that's a, clear, that would clearly have to be some kind of, you know, bizarre um, science that we just don't understand. But, but yeah, I think the Philadelphia experiment is probably the most visible um, example of potential time travel. And, and the fact that, you know, there's a degree of fact mixed with fiction and um, a lot of people intercepted themselves into it, you know, it's, um, it, it's a fascinating story. Um, I think we're kind of at this um, sort of brick wall situation right now. You know, some of the stories have gone way over the top. You know, they're just crazy. But there was that time in sort of the 70s and 80s when I actually thought, you know, later when I got the books and so on, that, you know, this this sounds feasible. Um, So, and, and again, I think one important thing is with the Philadelphia... Uh, experiment if the stories are true um what the government did and this is the important thing was to shut it all down uh, because they're not sure what was going on and i think that possibly could be um you know an issue an important issue when it comes to try uh, time travel namely that perhaps the reasons why um that a lot of achievements may not have been made is because of that fear of going too far Kind of like, you know, the, the final um, scenes in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, instead of investigating the Ark of the Covenant, you know, um, they put it all away and hide it. I think that's a possibility as well. Maybe there are people who have solved it, but it's such a bizarre kind of situation. Let's just not do anything with it. You know, I think that's an intriguing picture, really. But didn't all of this sort of originate with a fellow named Carl Allen, who called himself Carlos Allende? Yeah, yeah, kind of like um, an over-the-top sort of wannabe Walter Mitty-type character. Very strange guy. Yeah, he was um, he was someone who came forward in the 1950s um, and approached Morris Jessup, one of the 1950s UFO researchers, and... Um, and uh, Carl Allende, or Carlos Allende, claimed that he knew the truth of the um, of the experiment of the Eldridge USS Eldridge supposedly going in, invisible or travelling through time or whatever. Um, but um, Allende told the story to um, to Maurice Jessup. Uh, but what's particularly intriguing is that the U.S. Navy actually invited um, Jessup to come to the, the, you know, the, the Navy and uh, Naval Intelligence and tell uh, them exactly what Allende had told him. Now, if there was nothing to it, I don't think they would have flown... Um, uh, Jessup out to the Navy and be, you know, asking question after question, you know, what do you know about this experiment? I think there's more to it, but whether the extra bit to it is time travel, although it's, you know, it's one of the key questions and one of the key claims, we're still um, we're still looking into that, I think. But did, did the Navy actually uh, fly jessup anywhere to discuss this with him or did uh or did jessup communicate with them first no that that's true the the navy did um did fly um jessup out um to the navy and um, they gave him they flew him in for dinner they gave him a, a breakfast the next day and um and then interviewed him and the questions were you know all about the the supposed invisibility or time travel experiment, and um, and Jessup was happy. You know, it wasn't like an, a Men in Black type um, interrogation. It was actually um, quite, um, you know, sort of relaxed. Um, you know, people might like, you know, the, the idea of the Men in Black coming down and call it, you know, it's exciting, but it, but it wasn't like that. It actually was. You know, please just tell us what this guy said and what he told you, and so on. So, but the thing is, although Allende, um, you know, claimed um, that he'd seen 
um, the ship vanish from on another ship that he was next to it and saw it vanish. Um, despite all that, you know, we're, we're still in a situation where there are people who, have, granted, they came after, but there are some credible people who did come forward um, after um, Elendi came forward, admittedly. But Elendi was not the only one. You know, there's actually been quite a few people who over the years have come forward um, to talk about it. You know, and some of them said when they were on the ship, you know, they could. one of them had to grab, um, grab part of the ship because it looked like he wasn't standing on it and it made him, freaked him out, you know, that kind of thing. But the, the thing that I find interesting about all of this because I got involved into it in the 1970s, there were two naval officers who were interested in um, Jessup's book, I think it was this case for the UFO, and the letters that Allende had sent discussing all of these things. One of them was a captain, well, he ended up as a captain, Sidney Sherby. I talked to the guy. He lived in, uh, I think, Fort Worth, Varro Manufacturing. And yes, while, not far from me, actually. <laughs> yes, yes, I know, because I lived in Texas at the time, and I went down and visited him. And uh, he pointed out to me that the idea the Navy was very interested in this wasn't quite accurate. And that the, uh, he and a, a fellow named Hoover, I believe it was, had become interested in it. And the Navy said they could look into it if they wanted to, as long as it involved Navy time and Navy resources. They produced the um, copy of the book, that the annotated book that, that Allende had either sent yeah. to Jessup or to the Navy, I forget who it was actually sent to. Um, so there were a number of copies made, and um, Sidney Sherby showed me his copy. He said that's one of the five that he had had, and if I could copy it, Xerox it, then um, I could borrow it, which I did. So I've got a copy of the book that Varro Manufacturing made for them with all of this. But the point yeah. was the Navy wasn't interested in it. It was these two naval officers and the fact that they were in the Navy kind of followed them along. And that kind of suggests that maybe it wasn't quite as important as it seemed at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, that could be the case. I mean, you know, it's so far down the line, 1943, you know, and you've got... Um, like Chinese whispers, and she said this, and he said that, and I, my great uncle said that, you know. Um, there is that aspect to this, you know, there's no doubt about that. However, you know, it's like a lot of these stories, it, it does endure, and some of the people who've come forward are, have been genuine uh, people. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, if there was even just sort of like um, a portion of time travel to something like that. I could easily see um, why it would be shut down. Not because everything went wrong, maybe just because they did not know what to do, you know. And I, I think that's a possibility, the idea that it was shut down not because... Um, you know, it's going to open rifts and dinosaurs and, you know, things from the past are going to come through. I don't think they were worried about that. I think they were they were worried because they just, they were ignorant of what was knowing and what was going down. They, when I say ignorance, I don't mean in a, in, you know, in, in an insult kind of way. I mean it, you know, the, um, from the perspective that they just did not know what to do. And so what people often do when they don't want to do something, they they shove it away, you know. And um, it wouldn't surprise me if something like that happened with the Philadelphia experiment, whether time travel or invisible, invis invisibility. I think there's a possibility that it was so dangerous potentially that they said, let's just let's just leave it, you know, and uh, maybe come back five years later, that kind of thing. Well, you know. I think the whole thing traces back to Carlos Allende, Carl Allen. Um, yes, it does. Either yeah. communicating with Jessup or the Navy, and or communicating with both Jessup and the Navy that got the whole thing started. But um, Allende showed up at APRO headquarters in the early 1970s, I think it was, uh, maybe a li little bit later, and told Jim Lorenzen that he'd made the whole thing up because Jessup's writings scared him and confessed that, that it was all a hoax. And I think that was published in the April Bulletin at that time. And then 
uh, Yandy was on his way to Mexico because he thought he had cancer and he was dying and he wanted to confess the thing. And apparently the cancer went into remission or he didn't have it. And he returned to, to Tucson, Arizona, where APRO was at the time and collected the stuff he'd left with APRO and went, went about his merry way. But there was a confession that this thing was not true. No, it, it may not have been. It may not have been. I mean, you know, it's one of these things where we just don't have the answers. And, um, you know, and I think the problem is it's like a lot of cases um, when the documentation, the government documentation particularly, has gone or it's buried or whatever, you know, um, it's beginning more and more difficult um, to, to solve these cases. And... Um, but I think something happened with the Philadelphia experiment. Um, if it was um, time travel, you know, I could see um, what the hell do we do now, you know? <laughs> well, I think this brings us to a fellow named Al Balick, and we'll get to him in a moment. We'll yeah. come back to that. What I, <laughs> what I did want to yeah. say is that I've uh, done some things about the Philadelphia experiment, the Allende letters, on my blog. Uh, I did an article in Official UFO a number of years ago, and Yende actually got a hold of it and made an annotated copy, annotated it the way they've done, done the book, uh, Jessup's book. And I'll, I'll link to some of that on my blog uh, so that those of you who are interested in following up on this can take a look at uh, some, some of that. But I think the important point is we've moved beyond Yende, who may have made the whole thing up and confessed it mm -hmm. as a hoax, to others who have come forward and said, yes, I was part of that experiment and I uh, have these tales to tell. And one of those guys was Al Balak, and we'll, ch we'll chat with him right after this when we come back. Uh, once again, you are listening to A Different Perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, so please stick around. Redfern, we're talking about, oh, I don't know, all kinds of things, uh, time travel especially. Uh, when we went away, I was going to say uh, we were talking about uh, Al Balik, who came forward long after this and talked about how he had been involved in the Philadelphia experiment. Tell us a little bit about uh, Al Balik, please. Well, yeah, I mean... The story itself of the Philadelphia experiment is really sort of split into two levels. You've got the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s era where you know people claim to have um, had knowledge of the events or there were other ships and so on. And then you've got the other part of it, which is from the 80s, the 1980s onward. And it was in that period that we had um, people coming forward with some just bizarre, over-the-top um, scenarios and claims. And one of them was this guy named Al Bielik. And Al Bielik was someone who sort of commanded the whole scenario of the Philadelphia experiment um, in that era. You know, he was speaking at lectures, conferences, books were coming out. And yet everything was pretty much uh, very different to, um, you know, like Bill Moore's book, for example, or the, um, you know, all the ones, the ones that came for, uh, came earlier. Um, and basically, Bielek was talking about um, jumping into different bodies and souls uh, to explain how he looked younger than he should be, you know, in. Uh, um, in the 1980s, that kind of thing. Um, and then that sort of rolled over into an even bigger and stranger 
um, scenario, that of the, the Montauk project over at New York, supposedly deep underground. And all of this sort of rolled over into different things. You know, got the Philadelphia experiment, the uh, the original one, the Montauk experiments. You've got Bielik talking about being um, sent through time. And and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And frankly, uh, you know, I mean, I did, I followed the uh, Philadelphia experiment for a long time. But when I sort of really got into the Bielik stuff, I mean, it's just garbage, you know. I was going to say, um, I talked to uh, Brad Steiger about it, and Brad Steiger was a good friend of his, Bielik's, for a long time. And, yeah, he wrote a book about it, yeah. And Brad Brad said, uh, and I believe I believe he said it on, on this program, uh, the last time well, I spoke with him, that... Yeah, well, that, the problem I have, you know, I don't like to talk of, you know, people who are dead. Um, you know, and Brad was actually a good friend to me. Um, the one issue I had with Brad's book um, was the inclusion of Bielik. There was, I mean, there was still a lot of really fascinating material about the experiment um, without having to insert Bielik and his wacky stories into it. You know. Well, what I was going to say is Brad told me on, on the program that he was very disappointed in Bielik when he found out that he wasn't telling the truth. Brad's attitude had always been, and I, I and I look at it from the point of view as an investigator. It's, it's an attitude I just can't have, but I embrace the, the the simplicity of it, which was he would believe what people told him until he discovered they weren't telling the truth. He wouldn't actively um, try to verify stuff. He would just go along with the stories being told, and he was very disappointed when he learned that Al Bielik wasn't among those most truthful people around. Um, I was very disappointed in that, and I thought that was kind of the, the attitude that, that Brad always showed, that um, mm -hmm. he would he would believe the tales. I first met him, I knew the secret for getting in touch with him at one point, which was um, his, he originally was, uh, name was Eugene Olson, and he taught in Decorah, Iowa, and I was looking at a case from, a disappearance case from, from Wales, and I looked at, uh, I called up him to talk to about it, and um, he said to me, don't use this story, it's not true. And we get we build a friendship out of that sort of thing, our discussions about various aspects of various cases. So I was um, always, always impressed with Brad Steiger and what he did and how he handled his sort of investigations. And I, uh, Wanted to make it make it clear, but but he was very disappointed in what Al Balik had said to him, or what Al Balik had said, and didn't ended up not believing believing the story, and uh, you know I kind of destroys part of the Philadelphia experiment, I think, from that point of view. What's that last bit? What did you say? Well, they, it kind of destroys the Philadelphia experiment being something in well, the science. Well, it does if you if you buy into the whole thing. Now, for me, I, I never bought into the Bielik stuff, and I've never bought into any of the the Montauk stuff. I think if I think something happened, but the crucial thing is that what we know and what we knew, and what is the important material, is what went down in the forties, fifties, and sixties, and seventies, and after that. It just got weird, you know. Yes, it did. And I, I after talking to Sidney Sherby in, in uh, Fort uh, Worth, I pretty much uh, was against the whole idea of the, ex the experiment, no matter what it was. I had heard that the original experiment was some kind of magnetism or degaussing experiment that would make the ship invisible to radar. Really not quite the same thing as making it invisible or teleporting it from one place to another. Well, the Navy actually still stick to that the Gaussian one um, right now, because I am, 
I wanted obviously to keep the book up to date and so I asked the Navy if I could get their latest up-to-date fact sheet on the Philadelphia experiment because you know they get asked all the time and spend over the time you know they've they've um you know, sort of put it together, modified it, and whatever, if there's new material. And they're actually quite open, you know, and saying we thought it was this and then we thought it was that. Um, so, But they, to this day, the Navy is still standing by the, the magnetic angle, the, the degaussers, and um, that, that's still in, in, um, in place, that scenario. Well, uh, I think that's, you know, something we have to take a look at, but... Uh, I think we we need to move on from that. We've kind of uh, beat it into the ground. So I was wondering, is there some aspect of the book that really excited you that you think may be true? In, what you mean uh, in, ter- in um, sort of time travel per se, so to speak? Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, we've been sort of talking about, you know, the past. And, and again, you know, I think there's this... There's this angle where, for whatever reason, um, you know, that uh, it seems to be, a lot of it does seem to be stuck into the past, so to speak. <laughs> no, no pun intended. Um, but it does. Um, but I, what fascinates me are things, you know, like the, <coughs> excuse me, you know, when we're talking about wormholes and things like that. And um, now, to what extent, you know, that may have a bearing directly on time travel but i think we're starting to see some really fringe science being developed and you know when you're talking about you know black holes and so forth you know and um it makes me wonder if at one point you know we won't just understand it but we'll be able to um control it now if that does happen you know potentially the day might come um, you know, that um, we could achieve time travel. But then, on the other hand, you know, if we achieve it, well, and then we come back, haven't we already achieved it? <laughs> you know? So um, that's one of the things about, there's so many angles to time travel, you know, and um, and it fascinates me, but to a degree, it's it's sort of frustrating at times because of the sort of the red flags that pop up here and there. And yet at other times, things sound really plausible, you know. Well, yeah. Uh, and we can always say we're always moving through time anyway. We're traveling through time. We're moving forward in time. Uh, and there's there's evidence that we can speed up the process. I think time dilation is one way that we would travel through time, but we just certainly can't get back to uh, or go back into the past and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think what it, what it comes down to, people who, you know, are interested in time travel are probably hoping for, you know, the, the DeLorean scenario, as I call it. Um, but I don't think that's what it is. And, and I think these random events that I talk about uh, are, are more along the lines of the, the real situation, that there are strange and weird glitches in time that we just don't understand, but we know, well, something happened, you know. Yeah, I can think of scientific explanations for some of these glitches that uh, would be, mm-hmm. we might yeah. see is physically impossible, but uh, they're based on gravity waves or some kind of uh, physical phenomenon we don't, don't understand that allows us to at least look into the future uh, in some respects. Yeah, and then, of course, you know, you've got the sort of the, the big nightmare, which, you know, um, all the other people who've sort of jumped in and sort of hoaxed things. I mean, a perfect example is, is Philip Corso, you know, where basically he was saying that the Roswell UFO was some kind of, of time machine, um, you know, and um, he never presented anything along those lines. It was just a simply simplistic sort of statement, you know. Well, I, I think that's uh, something we need to explore at another time because you know, getting yeah. into that aspect of, of the Roswell case, we could go on and on about that forever in a week, I suppose. <laughs> uh, I want to thank you, Nick, for taking time out to chat with us today. 
and give us your Sounds insights. Not a problem. Give and hopefully insights. next time, yeah, and hopefully next time, um, all my uh, audio and net connection will be uh, okay next time. So. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that would be nice too. <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> well, thank thank you so much, Nick. I appreciate your time today. All right. Thanks, Kevin. See you okay. later. Bye bye. Bye bye. Uh, once again, the book is Time Travel, The Science and Science Fiction uh, by Nick Redfern, one of his many, many books. He's done lots and lots of them, but then again, so have I. Um, I've got a book coming out in the near future on Project Moondust, an updated version of that. I've got a book coming out on Level Land, which we'll take a look at that. And I'm doing a book called Understanding Roswell, which tries to put it into a kind of perspective that makes it easier to understand after all the nonsense that has gone on like that. Next week, I'm going to be joined by um, Stan Gordon to talk about the Kecksburg UFO crash from his perspective on it after we had uh, uh, Bob Young on it to talk about it in the past. You have been listening to A Different Perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network, and I will return in about 167 hours. Thanks for tuning in.